Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Claire. And <laughs> wow, what a week. Uh, and I'm Julia Claire. <laughs> <laughs> I was so unsure of myself, uh, but that's fine. That's just the kind of week it's been. So this has been like, a, I mean, okay, obviously very horrible week for news. Like everything coming out of Ukraine is just very, very sad. Yeah. And, you know, the Supreme Court hearings, uh, the confirmation hearings, hearings for Judge Jackson are like, I mean, it's a circus. And it's, it's an it's, absolute clown car. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah, so. Also, Clarence Thomas is in the hospital. Oh, with, with something we pray. With some, <laughs> we pray yeah. um, with something unrelated to COVID, but he's just been in the hospital the whole week. And um, a breaking news story just came out that his wife was like basically was relentlessly communicating with him to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election and he is the only no vote on the certification of the uh 2020 election results uh so anyways it's been a big week for the supreme court news which is interesting because all the supreme court news usually happens in the summer i didn't i saw people tweeting about like the wife thing but like without saying his name and i was like who is this who's doing this who's yeah no it's his wife uh yeah yikes anyways uh and this is why you should never listen to your wife (laughs) and that's what we're here to say is that you know your wife is yap 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 in a way and you know you just the gotta tune ball, her out the old ball and chain the old ball and chain you know oh happy wife happy life sometimes she wants you to overturn the 2020 election results and you just gotta say honey please that reminds me of oh i remember i was jaw dropping when i heard this that like after the monica Lewinsky stuff came out hillary clinton did not talk to bill for eight months and then the, like she just didn't talk to him and then like eight months later she called him to tell him to bomb serbia and then he did it this was like in the during uh when 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 it was all going down in in and that's feminism (laughs) well i mean it's you know serbia was doing some pretty bad stuff back then but no i know yeah i know but it's but i mean yeah, I do. I don't think want to make me- too much light of it. I, I'm not not in favor of the bombing, but I, I still, right. you know, I do think it's metal to not talk to your husband for eight months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I think that that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's um. Oh man, but that's uh. I mean, Dave Anthony had this good point, which is basically like, you know, people think it's you will say that it's callous that we want Supreme Court justices to die. But the system is set up for us to want them to die. Like, that's That's the only way. Because that's the only way out. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, it shouldn't it shouldn't be like that. We wouldn't be wishing death on these people if no, it was just like, oh, you get to serve four years or whatever, you know. And it also wouldn't be like when, you know, when one of ours dies, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't be such 
a horror show. Like, do you remember the abject panic, rightly, when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg suddenly died? Because yeah. we have to either rely on them to retire on their own volition or die. And yeah. a lot of them don't want to retire. That's why I want to give uh, I want to give praise to Stephen Breyer for knowing when to say when. God bless America, uh, and paving the way for. I'm I, I'm honestly I don't care if it's like I, I I don't know I don't think it's like neolib to be excited about um, Judge Jackson because she's a public defender, and yeah. she seems like kind of on the up and up. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely, in my opinion, like, you know, the best person that would get nominated for this job. Yeah. Like, would I pursue, you know, would I personally prefer somebody who was, you know, not, like, a Harvard grad? Yeah, totally. But, sure. I mean, it's just, like, the way that this is, the way that this is all set up, I think, yeah. all things considered, it's... uh it is what it is, you know? Well, I mean, that's the double-edged sword of, especially if you're, uh, you know, a person of color in uh, in her profession, uh, I, th- I think that's the whole thing, the, the whole argument that you have to be, like, twice as good as everyone else. Oh, but I think that, yeah, yeah I mean, definitely that, and I didn't mean to, to gloss over that, but I mean, all of these people, every single justice on the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah, for sure. From, like... Has attended, I think, an Ivy League school or like another school on that right. year. Like they're all kind of connected to. They're all from you know a lot of privilege, I guess. Yeah. And if we're talking about it in like a uh, like in a in an, in an economic sense, so yeah. I mean, there was so there was a um, an info- infographic going around um, that kind of put out a. Uh, it was like um, a tally list for all the Supreme Court justices, and I think only like three of them have gone to public, went to public high school. Yeah, and but pretty much all of them, except I want to say Amy Coney Barrett, went to uh, an Ivy League law school. Um, but yeah, I actually, I, I to be completely honest, I don't know very much about Judge Jackson's socioeconomic background um but i don't well um, no i mean i just i mean she's she's ivy league she is you know on the board of this like georgetown school she's just connected to a bunch of like bourgeois sure and whether or not i don't know how she grew up like whether or not like whether or not this has always been her life or just is her life now like she's you know a, a ruling class person and that's fine that's what it is to be on the supreme court i'm not like you know i think that i would like to see like you know <laughs> rule by the working class and this is not oh sure 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 you know sure but, i mean but i think as far as people go that will get nominated to the supreme court she's good you know yeah yeah and i think <laughs> i mean i do think it says a lot about her that she took an ivy league education and at an education at an Ivy League law school and used it to become a public defender. That is good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I mean, I think like you're so many 
people at Harvard Law School just end up becoming Ted Cruz's and Tom Cotton's. And- I mean, yeah. <laughs> to be clear, like, I don't want there to be a Supreme Court. It's not like a matter right. of, like, this uh, uh, individual uh, quibble with a, a particular justice. I think, you know, I think it's like a, an anti-democratic institution. And I think that it is, like, it is one branch of government that is, like kind of set up to make sure that the ruling class also has a a really really disproportionate share of power so i'm talking more on like a a structural level you know i mean here's my here's my big bone to pick with her is that she did improv yeah well i mean so i do want to say that these like hearings this this week have been uh absolutely disgusting to me and i oh yeah i think that i mean it's it's pretty it's been an crazy. absolute horror show it's been a horror show i mean it's it's been really racist i think republicans have been pretty shitty like uh all the kind of stoking panic about you know crt critical race theory and i don't know if you saw that situation oh the here. yeah that the the official gop twitter account uh, yeah. Had her initials uh, KJB, and then they crossed it out and wrote CRT. Yeah, and the connection between I, the the her connection with CRT is is really thin. Like she has, I think, mentioned right that her 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 connection with CRT is that is she she read it in law school. She admires one of the professors who has been an advocate for it. One of the founders of CRT, I think, his name's Derek Bell. You know, I mean, it's I a, mean, but it but it comes down to the fact that she's a Democrat and she's black. Yeah, that's... exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in addition, so that's, you know, Ted Cruz had she's on the board of this Washington, D.C. school, this public high school. No, no it's not a public high school. It's not uh, it's the opposite of a public high school. It's a private elementary school and uh, private grade school. And so uh, he like pulls out all these like books that are taught at that school and you know it's stuff like uh, there's some books that I've read like The End of Policing by Alex Vitale and mm-hmm. by the way Alex Vitale said that you know his book has gone up to the the bestseller list in Amazon which is really cool but then he pulls out some other books and then the funniest thing happens he pulls out this book Anti-Racist Baby Mm-hmm. by Ibram Kendi, who, by the way, I think is, you know, I mean, to me, he is like when you're talking about people that want like to promote like a pretty um, like the opposite of a Marxist idea of how to make people how to improve society. He would be like he would be that, you know, he's yeah. it's, it's very much just um n- not in, in my from what i've seen so far not centered in like any kind of like real uh redistribution you know but you know it's a, a, you know a lot of uh i think like white people should you know be aware when they're doing something racist and to be clear i think that's good i just don't think that it, it goes far enough you know so it's just mm-hmm. like anyway he has this book anti-racist baby and there's this page where you know it's a book to to read to your baby about being racist uh and he he ted cruz like prints out this page and he has uh it's like a baby 
and it's he's like babies should confess to being racist you mm-hmm. know and then you know there's this other book it's just like a baby with like a pacifier or some stuff and she's just sitting there looking like so confused like why would you expect that i have read a baby book and it's just an absolute circus um but it, i just it was so funny that the staffer that was putting up these uh baby book images just looked like she was like evaluating her entire life you know and so it's um I don't know it was and then Ted uh, Lindsey Graham gets very um oh boy goes in uh on this case of uh in his opinion she was not hard enough in sentencing on somebody who was um convicted of uh, having child porn and her sentence was i think like you know in the range of sentences that are given for such a crime it's just it's not it wasn't the harshest sentence that she could have done right like it was mm-hmm. it was in the range but it wasn't the most at the at, at, at the, the further end extreme. yeah yeah and he was very uh he just really kept pressing this and i think that is very very much about um, kind of stirring up the QAnon people, you know, in addition to just making her look bad in general, because they're obsessed. The QAnoners are like obsessed with the fact that like Democrats are <laughs> pedophiles, which yeah. is a pretty, I mean, obviously there are some, you know, but, but I wouldn't say it's uh, the majority of people. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would. I'm co- I'm actually comfortable making that that statement here yeah. on the on the show. I yeah. do not think that the majority of Democrats are pedophiles. Uh, you heard it here first. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. What a circus. Um. He. He also uh, Lindsey Graham also really went went pretty hard on uh kind of interrogating her about her her personal faith yeah. which i was i i can't believe those kinds of questions are even allowed but he made the point that um oh judge barrett amy coney barrett was um made to seem like a kook just for being a catholic and amy coney barrett is not just a catholic Okay, I like Amy Coney Barrett is part of uh, the people of praise denomination, which basically it's like a cult, basically, it's right? A, it literally the doctrine is that like anything outside of the umbrella of people of praise is of the devil. So she's not just a Catholic. <laughs> like, wow. I mean. I'm just a Catholic. I like in that I go and say hi every now and then. <laughs> That's what most Catholics are are doing, right? <laughs> right. I yeah. Just showing up on Christmas and Easter, you know, and just feeling bad. The hey, yeah. Uh, what's up? Going to see Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I just can't believe that questions about someone's personal religion are even allowed uh but i guess they are yeah it's it was pretty wild um anyway you know 
Also, Kate, are you in a sewing room right now? Where are you? I am in, a, in my friend's sewing room in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I, I am uh, on tour in, in Asheville right now. So um, yeah, come if you if you hear this tonight, come see me. Uh, I will be, I think, at the Gray Eagle in Asheville. And tomorrow I will be in Tuscaloosa. And on Saturday, I will be in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, yeah, that's that. But um i do want to say that uh our interview this week i loved it uh, i talked to a genocide researcher and um she's a, a writer she's done some pieces for the intercept her name is arnesa kustura and she's bosnian and we had a really interesting conversation she is a genocide survivor um and from the 90s when she was a little girl um in bosnia and we talked about her perspective on the war on Ukraine. Also, what she, you know, her perspective on what's happening uh, in in Bosnia right now, which is the um, kind of resurgence of right wing nationalism to mm. a frightening degree, and um, it's also backed by Putin. And you know, I think she's somebody that has a perspective that. I just think is really interesting to hear because um, it's neither it's anti-war, but also not dismissive of like mm -hmm. what a being in a war is actually like and Putin's war of aggression. And, I, you know, I just think it's very interesting. We also uh, talked about like the weirdo trend of like certain genocide deniers on the left, a little bit of Noam yeah. Chomsky sometimes, you know, <laughs> but yeah, oh. I, I, I still like love manufacturing, manufacturing consent. It's a, it's a seminal text, but uh, he got, got things pretty wrong when it comes to Bosnia, you know? So um, anyway, I think also you'll enjoy this interview. Some other people who have large followings on the left uh, yeah. denying the Armenian genocide. <laughs> I don't know who's doing that, but I it doesn't I do. Surprise <laughs> me at all. Doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it's I don't know, but but we we went into like why people are doing that and just you know like how like how what an actually sort of like principled non genociding non genocide denying yet non uh, national security state subscribing. Uh, perspective looks like and you mm -hmm. know the consensus which uh, she talks a lot more about is like it takes a lot of work to not just to be somebody that is neither going to buy you know like the 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 state department press release with line and singer or mm -hmm. make up like insane shit and become a conspiracy yeah. theorist it takes a lot of work it, it takes a, like a lot of actual reading comparing sources to each other and reading <laughs> no so anyway i think you'll enjoy this perspective she's really cool and um we will see you soon just listen to reply guys hello and welcome back to reply guys i'm really excited about our guest this week um I i've been following her online and i just think that she's so smart and interesting so i'm very excited to get to talk to her um she is a socialist genocide researcher and writer and um she it, it lives in london but is bosnian and i'm just really excited to have her on the show um arnesa kusura welcome thank you so much for having me kate i'm so excited to be here and to to have a 
cool and interesting conversation with you. I am. I'm just really stoked to get to, to talk to you. I, I feel like your perspective um, on what's happening in Ukraine has been one of the ones that I really have particularly valued because what I like about it is you are like, I see kind of, I'll tell, I'll tell you what kind of perspectives I don't like. Right. So, you know, there, I, there's obviously like all these kind of, you know, super warmongering liberals, like, Hey, let's have a no fly zone. Like who cares? We're already in world war three. And that is, you know, it's a bad idea to have world war three in my opinion. Right. So, um, but then, you know, I think that there are people who are truly minimizing the the suffering and just you know atrocity that people um, in Ukraine are going through as a result of Putin's invasion and you know to me it's like I don't want to compare the two because you don't really one group has power you know and is and seats in government and the other group is like mostly people who are don't have power so it's it's not really equivalent but I I do feel like you know, both your research and what you've been through in your life has allowed you to have like a, a, a complex and right take, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how that works because obviously, you know, even in my personal work and, and in everything that I write and I do, um, I approach it through this lens of who I actually am, which is, you know, a genocide and war survivor, somebody who's actually seen the damage and the effects of, you know, a war of aggression um, on her own environment, on her family, her friends, you know, neighbors, the city, the country itself, and how um, those, you know, the consequences of that aggression and that genocide are still very much felt 30 years later. Um, so I approach it from that perspective initially, but then obviously the other perspective is just my own, I guess, educational and, you know, career background of being a lecturer and a researcher and a writer and really discussing and constantly learning about not just the genocide and the war of aggression in Bosnia, but, you know, Armenia, Holocaust, Sudan, Rwanda, all of these other sort of conflicts that have happened. Um, so when I, when the, you know, when I woke up in the morning and the the breaking news was Putin invades Ukraine, it was like, oh, fuck, hell. I kind of could already picture the two sides, what they would be <clears throat> and how they would look and what each side would be saying. And I knew on one hand we would have, you know, the stereotypical warmongers, you know, the kind of people that were for the Iraq war, the kind of people that still justify it to this day. And then on the other hand, you'd have, you know, a mix of a group I like to, to, there's these well-meaning leftists who I feel like have been kind of duped by this other of the, of the more influencer left, as I like to call them, who clearly have a very, I think, skewed perception of what reality actually is and how complex it is when you're kind of on the periphery of the East and the West, uh, you know, and you're kind of stuck in in between two sides like the U.S. and Russia, just like Ukrainians. So I could already see all those takes and I was like, OK, let's go in. Let's uh, let's try to bring 
a little bit perspective and a little bit of a nuance to this conversation because as much as we want the world to be black and white, as much as we want a clear cut bad guy and a clear cut good guy and, you know, an end to the things that make everything complicated, that's just not how reality works. I I would agree with you there. And just to be clear, you are not classifying what's going on in Ukraine as a genocide, yes? Or... No, 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 I'm not. And I've had, you know, conversations about the Ukraine, um, the war of aggression on Ukraine quite a lot, actually, over the past month. It's now been a month since the aggression. I've had the I've had an ongoing conversation with other researchers and other genocide experts and scholars who are particularly, you know, um, even m- much smarter than I am um, to kind of see their perspective. And to be honest with you, there's very few people that I think would agree that what's happening in Ukraine is genocide right now. Um, you know, there has to be intent. There has to be a systematic plan. There has to be a systematic execution. Now, that's not to say that genocide cannot happen in Ukraine. Um, and we've we've heard some genocidal rhetoric from Putin, you know, himself and the way he kind of described Ukraine as this extension of Russia and how he was going to go in and denazify and decommunize Ukraine and all of these things. But that's not enough to make it a genocide. What I think is really important people understand is that this is a war of aggression And it's actually really important to call it a war of aggression. It's important to call it a war because I think people have this tendency where they see crimes against humanity or war crimes being committed. And their first thing is genocide. But things don't have to be a genocide in order for it to be bad. Crimes against humanity. I mean, here's the thing. Genocide is a crime against humanity for one. It's considered one of the most egregious ones, but it's not the only crime against humanity. It's not the only war crime a group or a leader can commit. War crimes on their own, as Putin has committed by targeting hospitals and schools and you know civilians, they're bad on their own. They do not have to be genocide to be bad. And I want people to understand that this is actually what war is. What Putin is doing, this is a war of aggression. This is what it looks like. This is why we're so anti-war, why all of us should be anti-war, because of the damage that is now being inflicted on the civilians. And I want people to realize that when you have, you know, this sort of a nationalistic, despotic leader like Putin, uh, and whether that's Putin or whether it's any other leader in the world that's, you know, that kind of spews similar rhetoric as him, these are the consequences of their actions, right? They're never, their plan is never gonna be to go in to have a war against just the military targets and to target just military bases and to have, you know, our our kind of like this idealized version of war, which is there's two clear opposing sides and they're going at it with bombs and and guns and, you know, weapons. That's exactly, Yeah. yeah. But that's just not what war actually ever is. That's never how it functions. There's always civilian casualties. There's always civilians being targeted specifically. And there's always mass, you know, consequences and damage. And, you know, in in many ways, I think 
what Ukraine is really serving, unfortunately, it's really serving to kind of, I think, lift um, our, our sort of rose colored lenses off of this perception of what we think war actually is, because we're seeing the, the suffering as it happens in real life. Um, and I think for many people, it's it's maybe possibly now just hitting them. Oh, crap like war is really bad, you know? And so again, you know, I radiate, no, it doesn't have to be genocide for this to be bad, for us to condemn the actions of Putin and the Russian army. Um, it's bad on its own. It's bad enough as a war of aggression. And there's clearly an instance of war crimes. Now, I think our best hope is that this does not escalate because unfortunately war creates the perfect um, environment for things like, you know, ethnic expulsions and ethnic cleansing and genocide and um, a lot of other crimes against humanity to occur. So I think it's really important that we keep, I guess, as close of an eye out as possible on the overall situation because, you know, things can change so swiftly when it comes to that sort of environment, a wartime environment, and it could easily become a genocide. It could easily become a mass ethnic cleansing. But right now it's still so early that I would not take anyone seriously who says, yes, absolutely. This is a genocide. Yeah. I mean, I, I asked you that question specifically because I do see some some people, I think, pushing that in, in bad faith as a justification for military intervention, you know, in the United States, um, you know, but I, you know, I also want to be like really clear that, you know, no interest here in, in minimizing at all what's happening. And, you know, I was wondering, like, from your perspective, like, what do you think that people who have never lived in a country where there's a war just get totally wrong when discussing it? I think, you know, the the fact that um, there is a huge level of desperation. I mean, no matter how great or bad of a leader you are, it can't be easy to watch your people being killed. It doesn't. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't matter if you're a president or a political leader of some sorts or just a it's regular still human. Yeah. Yeah. It's a human reaction. So I think what people often miss in these discussions is war creates a specific kind of desperation that leaves you really reliant simply on the goodwill of others. And we can see that happening right now with, you know, Ukrainian refugees who are being, you know, left reliant on the goodwill of Poland or Slovakia or whatever goodwill, <laughs> I say that very lightly, um, the UK decides to throw at them, um, which also means that it leaves you desperate for some sort of assistance, particularly from greater countries or, you know, more developed, richer countries, more powerful countries. Of course, I'm talking about the United States, you know, um, I, I think 
I saw somebody say something like this and it was like, well, you know, if I was in a war zone, I would not be begging NATO or America to intervene because I know what they would do. It's like, and, oh, yes, you would be. You would be begging anyone. Are you would absolutely begging, buddy, yeah. first of all. And it's easy for you to say that you live in America. You know, you're safe. You're you know, like the thing that I loved about my time living in America, I lived there for 10 over a little bit over 10 years. Right. Was the sort of just the knowledge that I would absolutely never be attacked. And this came after like 9-11 and even seeing the effects of that, I was still like, yeah, there's never going to be a war on American soil. I'm 100% safe from war here. Um, so I always think it's funny when they approach it, like I would never do it. Maybe you wouldn't, but the likely the likelihood is that you absolutely would. You would plead to whoever is in power, whoever has the ability to intervene either you know, to do a humanitarian intervention, we are providing you with weapons and food and medicines, or to come in with a shitty diplomatic solution that fucks up your country for years to come, or to, you know, whatever, do whatever it takes. I think, you know, people have talked a lot about Zelensky um, going and, and basically asking for a no-fly zone, and it's just so silly. They're not going to give him a no-fly zone. And I'm like, of course, they're not going to give him a no-fly zone. But that's a that's a specific tactic he's pulling. He's going to keep pressuring for a no-fly zone because he knows that that's what they need in order to basically win or you know protect his people. So he's going to ask for the highest, most um, you know unimaginable thing. He knows he's not going to get a no-fly zone, um, but then he can work down from that to get actual military weapons or further funding or humanitarian aid, whatever it really takes, or to, you know, discuss some sort of diplomatic solution that ends the war, whatever it is. Um, so I think, you know, people who think that he's 100% serious, I mean, he might be, but I just view it as like a negotiating tactic because that's just usually how these things work. Yeah. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, you know, with countries like Ukraine and like with Bosnia, we we're small countries. We're kind of, you know, uh, I hate saying this, but like really bottle of, you know, bottom of the barrel when it comes to like people caring about us in some some way or another. I mean, you think about Ukraine and Bosnia for the last like, I don't know, 50, 60 years or 100 years. And the only time anybody has ever cared about either country has been when they've been attacked, you know, and when there's been a war. Um, so when you're in that position, when you're a small country and you're on that periphery in Europe, like between the East and the West, and you're kind of stuck between these two sides, you your options are so limited. And you know, like your government leaders, your people, you all know that you are absolutely 100% left reliant on the goodwill of the Western powerful countries. So you're going to ask for help. You're going to ask for whatever it takes in order for your people to stop dying. And that's just, you know, I wish that wasn't the case. I wish I could like sit here and be a super committed and principled anti-imperialist and, and uh, just talk about the values and the principles of, you know, being anti-NATO and anti-West. But as a Bosnian, I don't have that privilege because I know that, you know, tomorrow 
if Serbia decides to attack, the first freaking place that I would be appealing to would be to the West. It would be you have a responsibility. You have to help these people, you know, and people often say, oh, well, the United States can't play the world's cop, but they do. That is the role that they have had for a long time. And it sucks. It is not the role that I think most countries would want them to play, but it is the role that they have. It's the power that they hold. It's the money that they have. It's the military power that they have. All of these things contribute to, you know, the rest of us just being so fucking reliant on them. And, you know, like I said, I would love to just have it be all about principles, but the reality is so different. And it's just understanding that fact that war is not black and white. You are going to look for the lesser evil you're going to look for that solution that gets you out of the trenches, so to so to speak. Um, and whether that's appealing to Israel or the U.S. or the U.K. or France, that it, it is what it is, basically. I I think, you know, I'm definitely one of the people that's on the side of the U.S. should not be the world's police. I think our, our record all over the world has been pretty disastrous and, you know, has just resulted in my opinion in, in so many unnecessary deaths. And at the same time, you know, I, I, it is, it is really complicated. Like it, I, I remember seeing you on Twitter bring up like uh, people were tweeting, you know, comparing like the coverage, I think it was a time magazine cover of you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine versus like NATO bombing Serbia in 1995. And, you know, like, I'll, I'll be honest, I think that, you know, it's, <laughs> to me, it's like, it's safer to, to, it's safer for me. And like, I think just morally to be like, yeah, like I'm on the side of pacifism. I'm on the side of like U.S., should not go bomb people. But also, you know, there there was a genocide going on that I think that person completely skipped over. And, you know, I mean, the 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 failure to intervene militarily, you know, arguably was at least one huge, huge factor in like, you know, just a, a ton of people dying. I think like 8,000 people massacred in like one day, right? Like, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it was just, so I don't know. I mean, like, how how do you balance knowing, like, understanding, like, the reality of like what it is like to be in an incredibly dangerous situation where you're, you know, pe- people are trying to to murder each other, um, or you know, especially when when it's really really one sided, <laughs> um, like with you know being like a, an anti war leftist. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I'm I'm a pacifist and I have been a pacifist my entire life. And I think you don't survive a war and not come out of it a pacifist. Well, it's not true. You come on one or the other extreme. Right. You're either super anti-war or you're like, raw, we're going to do it again. <laughs> you know, we're, we want to do it where you're one of those people. And I've decided to be a pacifist. And my favorite quote, the quote that I live by was from Albert Einstein, which says, you know, I am a committed pacifist. Um, even more so, I would fight to ensure pacifism, something along those lines. I don't remember the exact quote now. So I think 
with that in mind, that's basically the approach I take is knowing that in order for us to, you know, achieve peace, sometimes, unfortunately, war or, you know, some sort of military intervention is necessary at times. I mean, we saw that with the Holocaust. Yeah. Nobody ever talks about the Dresden bombing that undoubtedly impacted civilians. You know, nobody highlights this as, as bad because they were massacring, you know, millions of Jewish people and Roma and Slavs and communists and LGBT people and everybody who didn't fit into their little narrow idea of what a perfect Aryan is. So I approach it basically twofold. One is with the understanding of America's history. This is a country that was, you know, built on the genocide of the Native Americans, the slavery of, you know, Black people. It is a country that was entirely built on violence. It is a violent country. You know, it's a country that's intervened in a lot of places and left them way worse than it found them. Um, It's had tons of mistakes, you know, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, come on, you can't discount those sins, you know, and I think we can be all open and honest and say that America as a country has unfortunately sinned a lot, you know, and we can openly and honestly discuss those sins and be very transparent because ultimately it was our taxes that were funding those horrible and grave, you know, offenses. So with that knowledge and understanding, yes, America is this huge empire, so naturally it has committed a great many sins. There also comes this other understanding, which is that America is not the only bad in the world. It just isn't, you know, it, it, there's, there's greater bads, there's bigger bads. And I think there's this thing with a lot of uh, my fellow socialists in the West who have this perception where for them, America is the greatest threat. But for people in Eastern Europe, that's not necessarily the case. For many people in many Eastern European countries, it's been Russia that's been one of the biggest threats for a really long time um, and remains so. And so I think you have to balance it. You know, the sins of America don't justify the sins of other countries. Um, They don't, uh, and, and also by talking about the crimes of other countries that doesn't magically erase America's crimes. You know, we can hold multiple beliefs and thoughts uh, according to the evidence that we have at the time. That's perfectly normal, natural, and I think principled thing to to do. Um, And, you know, you mentioned that time cover and it was really frustrating. It's been a really frustrating month, to be honest with you, because I was seeing everyone share that time cover. And it's like, oh, when they do it versus we do it. And I'm referencing the 1995 time cover of the uh, 1995 NATO bombing that actually happened in Bosnia. It did not happen in Serbia. I think a lot of people were confl- conflating it with the 99 bombing of Serbia which was done to prevent genocide in in Kosovo. Um, And there was, there was, that was an unauthorized, basically it was not authorized by the UN Security Council. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that goes into the 99 bombing. But 
then they were sharing the cover and kind of basically pretending it's the 99 bombing. And so I had to clarify, listen, this is the 1995 bombing. This bombing actually happened after hundreds, you know, thousands of people were killed already. Um, the massacre at Markala, where people were just waiting in line for bread and for fruit and vegetables that they could get their hands on. And, you know, the Serb forces threw huge mortars down, killing um, and injuring hundreds of people. And Srebrenica had happened at this time, which means that within a matter of days, Ratko Mladic, um, who was a convicted war criminal, you know, came in and massacred an entire town of mainly boys and men, but also women too, and children, and, and forcibly expelled the women and children. And, and it, it's just people don't understand the amount of crimes that were happening in Bosnia between 1992 until 1995, when NATO and America finally decided to intervene. And that 95 bombing did force the Serb for Serb Serb political leadership back to the negotiation table. It did lead to the Dayton agreements being signed and it did, you know, lead to the end of the war. Now I can talk day and night about how horrific the Dayton agreement is, but that's a, another topic for another time. The, the point is it stopped the war. It stopped the genocide and it came too late. It came way too late because at that point, the country had been absolutely desolated. There was mass graves already. There was, you know, 50,000 women systematically raped and imprisoned and tortured in rape camps. Um, you know, friends and family and, and parents were missing and killed. My own father was was in prison in a concentration camp. I, at the age of five, was the target of Serbian snipers in Sarajevo. So. There was a lot going on, and 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 it's unfortunate it took so long for the West to act. But that ninety-five bombing was a targeted military bombing, twenty-six or twenty-seven casualties altogether, and it did force the Serb leadership back to the negotiation the negotiation table, and it resulted in Dayton, which for better or, or, or worse ended the war. The fact of the matter is. It could have been even worse. You know, we don't know what could have happened. And, you know, the other thing is, unlike what's happening in U Ukraine, thankfully, who is actually receiving weapons to protect themselves, Bosnia in the 90s was under an arms embargo, which left basically the entire country and its population completely defenseless against the fourth largest and strongest army in Europe at the time. Um, so, you know, the Yugoslav army was literally, uh, it was, it, it only came right after like what UK, France, Russia, and then it was the Yugoslav army and they had all the power. They had all the soldiers, they had all the weapons, they had all the money. And, you know, the, the United States and Europe thought that, you know, they should leave Bosnia defenseless, which resulted in the genocide, which led to the NATO bombing. The point is. We can't decontextualize reality and history because when we do that, all we're really playing into is like the hands of the same ethno-nationalists that committed those crimes and that sit, still openly celebrate them. Um, and you know, it's because of the actions in Bosnia that then the 99 bombing 
which happened um, in Serbia, which left more casualties, um, 700 or so total casualties. Um, those, that was to prevent a further, you know, ethnic cleansing and genocide of the Kosovo Albanians. But even when leftists, Western leftists discuss that bombing, they don't talk about the concept, uh, context. They don't talk about what happened before then. The mass expulsions, the rapes, the attacks against the, you know, Kosovo Albanians. And when they talk about the NATO bombing of 99 and they mention, you know, the the civilian casualties, the thing that they mention is that 60% of those civilian casualties actually happened in Kosovo. Um, and there was only 218 total, um, you know, Serbian casualties. Now, here's the thing. This is not a games number. Let's be honest. Every single life lost to war is a life lost to war. And it's horrific. And every single one of those lives they, you know, that's a civilian life. It should be honored. It should be remembered. And it is absolutely a tragedy. But I think when we're comparing and we're only discussing one action in basically a decade of attacks and aggressions and rapes and genocides and ethnic cleansing, and we're only focusing on one part, we're not mentioning all this other stuff that predated it, that resulted in it. I mean, that's that for me is genocide revisionism. It is genocide denialism. And I think even more so, that sort of revisionism really leads to kind of this current situation where it kind of justifies and, and leaves this space open for Putin to do as he wishes, just like Milosevic did. Yeah. Um, and I think people really, sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but I think this is what people really don't understand that this isn't just about having these conversations and they're not just Twitter posts. They're not just sort of casual little mentions and trying to one up each other. They do have material consequences. Um, you know, if Putin, just like Milosevic, if Putin can see that there is enough people on his side, that there are people who are going to revise his crimes and kind of justify them, well, then he's going to consider it a job well done. You know, um, go on. There's no really consequences for me. I'll continue doing what I want. I'll continue attacking, you know, after Ukraine, I'll attack Poland, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's not just about a tweet. It's about the actual implications and what it actually means for people who are in these countries that are on the periphery of the East and the West and between, stuck between Russia and the United States. There's this... <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I was—I I mean, you said—you said a lot of things, and I want to—I want to to several points you made. But um, you know, what I'm thinking of right now is there. There's this impulse on the left that I think is is very well intentioned in many cases. Um, to I don't know to be very. I'm, I I can't even figure out how to phrase this. I guess just to give the specific example, like. I mean, we have been lied to so many times about weapons of mass destruction, um, you know, like, I mean, just the, the search for bin Laden, I was reading the other day and just remembering that like fake vaccine program that the CIA, CIA did. And there's been, you know, so many 
instances of the CIA, you know, interfering in Latin America and, you know, leading to massacres, genocide. I mean, like this impulse to be extremely skeptical of any sort of intelligence uh, information that is the official line. I get it. And it's probably a smart impulse, but I, I also think that it can, I mean, I'm thinking particularly about what you were saying, you know, and like, I, after reading some of your tweets kind of went down a, a rabbit hole of like, you know, seeing to like what extent, you know, this claim that Chomsky is a denier of the Bosnian genocide is true. And I mean, I think from what I've seen, it's, it's pretty irrefutable, you know, like, um, you know, and I, I, I think sometimes we see like, uh, people going a bit too far with the skepticism and just becoming like full on apologists for like atrocity. And I don't know, it's, it's confusing and complicated, but what, what is your advice to like, you know, a, a Western anti-war socialist for how to like, you know, balance, um, you know, a, 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 like learning about the the reality of what's actually happening versus, you know, balanced reality of what's actually happening, like with, you know, maintaining a healthy skepticism of like, you know, the official national security line, you know, and, and to do all of this while there is just, you know, a, a massive influx of propaganda from all sides. It's really hard, I think, you know? Yeah, I remember like the first thing, I, one of the first things I tweeted after the Ukraine uh, you know, after Putin invaded Ukraine was you're about to see a whole lot of propaganda and you need to research and double check and verify your sources and, and, and really like make sure that what you're posting is actually what you should be posting, you know, and I get it. I, I, I know what you said, you know, there, I, I do believe that there are a lot of well-meaning you know, leftist, socialist, communists who are just kind of there and they're like, well, yeah, you know, America's full of these crimes, so obviously America bad. But again, you know, America bad does not automatically mean everyone else good. And I think here's the thing, as socialists, how, what I can't wrap my mind around is as leftists, as socialists, we absolutely have learned and read enough about the failures of most governments and states. So if America is capable of lying and intervention and propaganda, do you not think other countries are capable of it at the same time? Of course they are. You know, yeah. like, let's be honest, there are very few good leaders in history and let alone now in modern history. And I think you know, justifying like Putin's actions and crimes is just so ridiculous to me because here is this clearly nationalistic right wing capitalistic despot. And I struggle to see what would make a socialist defend Putin's action other than thinking that, well, America's bad, so Putin must be good. And that's just such an immature way of looking at things. And as you said, yeah, many people do fall fall for this sort of, you know, having a healthy dose of skepticism is all fine and dandy, but don't buy into propaganda. You know, replacing one propaganda with another 
is not you're not really getting anywhere then you know choosing to not believe into american propaganda but choosing to believe serbian state propaganda or russian state propaganda what are you getting out of that nothing yeah. it's just two sides you know same same coin basically um and in the case of chomsky unfortunately he is one of those people you know he is one of those people that obviously you know he's he's done great work he has some parts of him that you know i i've definitely looked up to before i found out his you know certain statements on many not just the bosnian genocide but many other genocides and i think here's the issue if there's a genocide and you're denying it or attempting to minimize it or revising it and that's just one example of it i guess you know skepticism but then when it's like all these other ones then it just becomes weird and i have to question like what is the purpose of you denying these genocides because it wasn't just bosnia for him it was rwanda it was cambodia it, it, it was just kind of weird that this man this very respected scholar is taking a stance that is either borderline genocide nihilism or full-on genocide denialism um and with him it was quite clear that he had actually bought into the serbian nationalist propaganda because i remember specifically the one the the number one thing that kind of set this genocide denialism talking point was this um interview that he had where somebody pointed to the photograph of um of a, a bosnian man who was in prison in a concentration camp um Fikadalic. and um he the interviewer said yeah and that that photo has been proved as fake and and Chomsky just was like yeah yeah because it was a refugee camp and people could come and go as they please well, it wasn't. It was a concentration camp. The photo was proven as real, um, and the, the the news actually sued the the magazine that was kind of claiming that the photo was faked. So there was like forensic analysis done on the photo. The man is still alive, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and he, the man the man is alive and saying like to me that's what pushed it into just like honestly. I'm not comparing Chomsky to, to Alex Jones, but what it reminded me of was like Alex Jones with the Sandy Hook parents where like, you know, this, this guy, he's out there. He's saying like, no, I was in a concentration camp and they did this to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that man is, you know, really trying to deal with his trauma um, and, you know, just put his life back together in a way that, you know, few people probably understand and to just have somebody, you know, a prominent person out there saying, oh, you're actually lying about this. That seems horrible to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's so, you know, I, I've, I've noticed this trend on left Twitter where it's like, oh, you know, lived experience, whatever. You can't listen to just lived experience because like, what if we listen to the lived experience of like white racists or like, the Cuban, you know, rich people, what are they called? Um, I forget their names. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, and people's, I, I think that I'm, it's probably not politically correct for me to use the term, okay. but, but I think right. they call them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> not worried. We're not going to say, it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. But here's the thing when it's, 
or or they'll point to oh god there was like a a korean girl that was caught as like blind about north korea i think it was or like i don't know yeah there was some this was like a while ago and they'll point to that and, and i'm just like yeah okay like propaganda exists it's very much real like america does propaganda uk does france does serbia does russia does china does propaganda has been a real thing but if it's more than one person saying like if it's every single bosnian hundreds thousands millions of them who are saying yeah this was our experience i you know my parents were killed my family was in a concentration camp my family was in a concentration camp my friends were in a concentration camp you know i know people were subject when it's millions of people sharing the same experience that it's no longer just somebody's individual lived experience it is a real categorical scientific fact and here's the thing about the bosnian genocide right it is by far in the history of genocides one of if at the most forensically scientifically confirmed genocides right well and also like people i mean there were even like people from the UN, they're literally like witnessing people being. Let it happen. Yeah. The, the Netherlands, because of the inactions and actions of their, the UN peacekeeping force, the Dutch Bat, right? Because they were drinking and taking shots with Dutch at the same time that his forces were massacring thousands of people. They were found guilty of genocide. Like the Netherlands were like, they were literally found culpable. It was like a certain percentage, I forget, 20% or 10%, too low in my opinion. But either way, they were legally found, you know, justifiably guilty for their actions in failing to prevent the genocide and allowing it to continue. These people were literally taking shots with Ratko Mladic while he was committing, his forces were committing mass rapes and expulsions and killing people. Um, and so, again, we kind of go back to that black and white story of people wanting, like, you know, a good guy and a bad guy. And I think for many social leftists, they look at, like, Serbia and they buy into a lot of the Serbian nationalism because they think that Serbia has been, you know, somehow oppressed by the West um, because of the 99 NATO bombing. But for fuck's sake, like, if anybody got the worst kind of end of that deal, it's Bosnia because... You know, Serbia's country remained intact, but Bosnia, because of the Dayton Agreement, which the West implemented, basically ethnically, you know, segregated the country, and they basically rewarded the Serb leadership with their own entity on which they committed genocide. So they basically rewarded them for committing genocide. And this is my sort of main kind of point of frustration when it comes to the left, right? Because there's so many criticism that you could make as a socialist, as a leftist, of the way the US and France and the UK and the EU behaved during the Bosnian genocide, right? Their failure to intervene, their, the fact that they placed an arms embargo, knowing that they were leaving the Bosnian um, or the Bosniak side completely defenseless. 
Um, the fact that they implemented Dayton, which ethnically segregated the country and rewarded genocide. The fact that they were pushing people like Dodik or in Serbia, like Vucic, uh, and Madeleine Albright called him, you know, uh, a breath of fresh air. Uh, by the way, Dodik. And these, those- are, these are Serbian, these are Labor. Serbian nationalists. Like the, the can you, yeah. can you explain just for like 30 seconds, like what, like the difference is between like Serbia and like the um the Republic of Serbia. Yeah, because yeah. I feel like that took me a minute to understand that and I do now, but a lot of our listeners probably are unfamiliar. Yeah. Okay. So you have the countries, right? Uh Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, right? Um each of them are individual countries and all three of them were a republic within the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which disintegrated in 1991. Uh, Yugoslavia is dissolved, uh, Croatia, Slovenia declares independence, Bosnia declares independence, and then eventually um, Kosovo and, and Montenegro and like others, but let's focus on Croatia, Serbia, and Bosnia. So Croatia is its own country. Serbia did attack Croatia as well. And then Serbia, it's its own country. Nobody attacked it. Like Bosnia did not attack it. Croatia did not attack it. But Serbia, the country, attacked Bosnia. Now here's where it gets complicated. Bosnia is the most ethnically diverse of the two countries, which means that there in Bosnia, you will find Bosniaks, which are predominantly Bosnian Muslims. Then you have your Bosnian Catholics, which are considered Bosnian Croats. And then you have your Bosnian Christians, which are considered Bosnian Serbs. And then you have your Roma and your- And each people are speaking like a, a, a different same language. language. Same language? Same okay. Language, yeah. Same language, same culture, the religion is just different. Like if we're being really honest, it's just a religion that's different. Um, And then some obviously religiously tied cultural aspects as well. But in Bosnia, because it's the most diverse, that's where like, that's kind of why the worst of it happened. Because you had, you know, Serbia attack Bosnia. And then because they had, there was a lot of Serbs there, they basically... Uh, this is a long story, but there was a lot of propaganda. There's a huge propaganda campaign that resulted in uh, the Serbian leadership kind of fermenting this ethno-nationalist rhetoric. And they had Bosnian Serb leaders like Karadzic and Mladic. And they kind of worked together to, you know, spread and instigate an attack. So you have the Bosnian Serb leadership there. And then you had the Bosnian Croats, Franjo Tudjman huge nationalist, he kind of did the similar thing there. So Bosnia was basically being attacked by Croatians and Serbs during the the Bosnian war on genocide. Um, Now, we go back to now. So end of the war, Croatia's fine, Serbia's fine, the countries are their own countries. But Bosnia was split into basically, um, it's still country, Bosnia is a country, But within the country, there are two entities. You have the Federation, which is predominantly Bosniak or Bosnian Muslim, um, along with Croat, so Bosnian Croats, Bosnian Catholics. And then you have the Republika Srpska, which is predominantly Serb. And and it borders Serbia, right? Yeah, and Croatia, I think. Okay. Hold on. Yeah, anyway, yes. 
And so Republika Srpska is an entity within the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Bosnia as a country has three presidents, uh, one for the Bosnian Muslims, one for the Bosnian Catholics, one for the Bosnian uh, Christians. So Serb, Bosniak, Croat leaders, right? And um, it's a lot of fun, nothing ever gets done. So it's a really complicated system. So again, going back to this sort of thing of like, there's a lot of criticism that you can make as a leftist, there it is. It's the fact that because of the Dayton Agreement that ended the war, ethno-nationalism is now worse than ever because uh, when you have a tripartite presidency system in which people can or should only vote for a person of their ethnicity to represent them, and the Romas and the Jews and anybody who's an other does not get represented. It's completely anti-democratic. It's completely against, I think, any socialist values. Um, and Dodik is the current uh, leader of the Republika Srpska. He's one of the three presidents. Um, and he is, you know, Putin's man in the Balkans. Who's and one what does it man. mean to be Putin's man? Like just a little, because... So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just no. I think that this is like a, a thing that's really useful to get clarity on, because here's my current understanding and tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong, because I may well be. So like, it seems like the 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 nationalism that, you know, was kind of the uh, the the ethos behind the genocide, like it never really died all the way down it and that it seems like recently with dodic and you, the, there's been kind of like a an uptick in you know these like demonstrations in the street and that putin it seems to me has been has been involved in like in sponsoring this in some way is that right yeah 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 i mean <laughs> The yeah, the the nationalism. Dodik, for by the way, was not always this sort of strong man ethno nationalist that he is now. Um, he was all about democracy and blah blah blah. And he actually admitted that there was genocide in Bosnia, and he admitted that the Serbs did the genocide, and he was all about reconciliation and all of this stuff. But then he realized that wasn't really getting him votes, so he pushed. And he pushed, you know, more ethno-nationalism and he has gotten significantly worse in the last, I don't know, five years, especially, I would say, but definitely the last decade. Um, and in the past year, actually, ever since the Office of the Higher Representative implemented an anti-genocide denialism law, he has been all over the place. I mean, this man has just wreaked havoc um, him and uh, Dragan Chovic, the representative of the Bosnian Croats, they've been working sort of very diligently to kind of do election law reform, which would, which is such a complicated mess that I'm not even going to get into. But basically, it would be just even more ethno-nationalist, which is what, you know, serves them and serves their interests. So what does it mean to be Putin's man? For one, um, there's a really complicated thing here where, you know, Dodik is a Bosnian Serb. And this sort of solidarity between Serbia, Russia, and Republika Srpska 
comes really on the basis of this concept of Christian Orthodox Brotherhood. You know, there's like this sort of religious kind of tie there. And then in terms of, you know, what is he really doing that makes him, you know, his man? It's just they have this, they have a relationship. They meet often. He meets a lot of, you know, people in his government often. Um, and there is monetary support. Um, and there is kind of constant colluding, you know, and Dodik really pushing, you know, his interest onto Putin, Putin pushing his interest onto Dodik. Um, and in fact, it's so deeply in Rowan that you'll, you'll go to a place like Visegrad, for example, where uh, my family is from. And Visegrad was one of those small towns that was 99% Muslim, you know, it was predominantly Muslim town. And uh, within three months in 1992, when the war broke out, it was completely demolished, destroyed, and the, the Bosnian Muslim population was either massacred or, you know, expelled um, and removed. Um, it was a place of some, some horrific crimes. Um, so now it's no longer a predominantly Bosnian Muslim town, but a lot of the survivors are, have returned to kind of, you know, their own homes or have tried to. In that town where genocide occurred, where horrific crimes occurred, where there was rape camps, just horrific sort of stuff, you will find Chetniks, who are these sort of super extreme ethno-nationalist groups um, that really kind of date back to World War II and the fascist collaborator Draža Mihailović and um, there's a huge long history, but they're kind of like the main, I would say, like pushers of the Serbian ethno-nationalism. And then alongside with them will almost always be the Russian Night Wolves, uh, which is a Russian nationalist kind of, you know, gang or group, you know, and these, you know, these guys will literally terrorize like the residents and they will literally go on their little marches and sing pro-genocide songs celebrating it's gotta be terrifying i'm imagining because this has happened yeah. for real it's not like yeah. this has occurred and recently no. so yeah. yeah yeah this happens constantly like it happens constantly it's ridiculous you know we have a we have a house in Vishagrad that we it, it's ours legally speaking but there is a Serb family that lives there and the process to get it like, it's just too scary. Like, the last time my dad was there, he was like, I went to go see the house, and there was, you know, a Chetnik in his Chetnik uniform with a gun, just chilling in the front, drinking coffee with, like, another person. And I just turned back around, you know? So it is terrifying. Like, the threat is really real, and the relationships are really close, and they are really specifically tied. And I think, you know, a lot has been said about, like, the Ukrainian Nazi problem, which valid, absolutely. But also, like, the Russian fascists are not just in Russia. They're like all over the Balkans. They really are. And people genuinely, not just the Balkans, but Eastern Europe as a whole. And people genuinely underestimate like the impact of these fascist groups and how they cause turmoil and how they come together with like the local, you know, fascist groups. And you know, they don't actually have to commit any real physical violence, although sometimes they do. All like it's enough to like see them to be terrified and to kind of like it, it's this, 
you know, this whole thing is like for them to kind of show their power that like, oh, look, we're freely walking. You can't do shit. We're going to celebrate Putin and Dodik and Mladic and sing pro-genocide songs and make threats. And you can't do anything about it. And it really makes you like hopeless and defenseless. And, you know, God, I could talk about Bosnia for, for so long because it's such a complicated, you know, part of the world. And it's such a tiny country when you think about it. It's like, I don't know, the size of like Virginia, maybe smaller than like the entire state of Virginia. So think about that. Like that one tiny little country is that complicated. And then you have all the other Eastern European countries and obviously the Middle East and, you know, every other country ever. So it's just laughable to me when anybody tries to kind of approach international affairs with that sort of simplistic, you know, mind, like mindset of, oh, America bad, so everybody else good or good guy, bad guy kind of mindset when it really is just absurd, like the amount of history in Eastern Europe, the 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 amount of ethno-nationalism throughout Eastern Europe and the Balkans and the fascist groups and, you know, the corrupt leaders and how they all tie to like Russia. It's just ridiculous. Like the, the it's like this thread and you're pulling on it and you feel like, you know, oh, it's done, but it never really is done. Um, so yeah, which you know, again, goes back to my point of we cannot decontextualize these, you know, these things. We really have to like do our research as much as we can, listen to the experts, the experts, um, you know, and, and 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 fucking approach it with a little bit of nuance, for God's sakes. You know, we're not we're supposed to be better than the the liberals and the conservatives, we're supposed to be the ones that value education, that value information, that welcome it. So even if you were ignorant before, um, like Chomsky, you know, maybe he was just genuinely ignorant and he bought into the propaganda. Once you learn the new information, apologize and move the fuck on and go, you know, go learn more, I guess. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like don't, we're, you know, the, the, I think a lot of this comes down to like our egos and wanting to be right. And also the fact that the left has been severely stigmatized, especially in the West. Um, and so we kind of cling to our heroes and we cling to, I don't know, like we cling to little pieces of history with such ardency that we kind of forget that they're part of history and it's not the now. Like yeah. sometimes the way people approach Russia, even now, it's almost like they still think it's the USSR. And I'm just like, it's not. No, it's, it's incredibly, not. it's it's really, really right wing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it's, they hate you. They hate LGBT people. They're just like, they hate minorities, you know. And I'm not saying regular Russians do. Um, you know, I'm saying like the government does and they, you know, systematically oppress these people. And for God's sake, like look at the amount of, you know, Russian oligarchs, like what even semi-socialist country is going to have that many billionaires? You know, there's yeah. very little difference between Russia and America, if we're being honest. I mean, also, like, Putin is out there, you know, saying that he does not like communism. Like, it's not like this is like secret information or something. You know? oh, <laughs> yeah. It just blows my mind. It really does. Because it's like, what? 
are do we not live in the same reality? Because this man came and he gave a big speech about how Ukraine is, you know, Lenin's Ukraine and, and Lenin invented Ukraine and Lenin and Stalin, and we're going to show them real decommunization and all of this crap. And so it's just like, uh, you know, when people tell you who they are, listen, believe them. Yeah. And Putin has shown us exactly who he is. He is not the good guy in this fight. He he is the aggressor. Um, and I think people are really underestimating, you know, the fact that um, there is a possibility that this conflict could escalate and could spread further east. Um, further throughout East Europe. I mean, the Russian ambassador to Bosnia and Herzegovina said himself, in fact, in his own words, he said, he basically said, well, you've seen our reaction to Ukraine. So, you know, expect similar consequences, like if Bosnia was to try and join NATO or um, the, the EU, basically. So, and then the, the oh, I forget the other guy's name, but he's just saying, you think we're going to stop at Ukraine? Like, oh, these are political leaders, Putin's people who are openly saying we are not going to stop at Ukraine. We are going to keep going. Um, and I think people are really underestimating Putin. People are really underestimating like this this sort of expansionist wet dream that he's currently in the midst of that he wants to you know fulfill. Um, it's not about denazification. It's it's not about anything other than him clinging to power and wanting to expand it. That's and imperialism. Helpful. I mean, yeah. like, there's, you know, there's a, to me, it's like very strange when, <laughs> it's very strange to me when people like think that only the U.S. could, could be imperialist. Because like, I mean, Lenin was writing about imperialism as, a stage of capitalism in Russia, like, you know, a hundred years ago or something, this is something that happens in, in capitalism. But, you know, I mean, it's like, I was thinking about what you're saying just now. And it's like, you know, we don't want to underestimate. And at the same time, this rhetoric that like Putin is Hitler, that, you know, he wants to take over Europe. This stuff is all used by warmongers to, you know, justify escalating violence instead of attempting to de-escalate the violence and find diplomatic solutions that, I mean, you know, with the caveat that the diplomatic solutions are, are going to not be great either, you know, but it's like, I think, you know, just, I, I guess what I'm taking away from this interview is like, we want to find these boxes uh to kind of like you know just land cleanly on on one side or the other of like you know either putin is is an expansionist and we need to you know regime change him immediately or you know like this is way overblown like he's not attempting to spread fascism you know and it's like it's just it's a really really complicated situation so i i know you got to go here but i i just as my final question i want to ask you like you know i obviously i know you don't speak for for everyone but from your perspective what can the u.s left do to show solidarity with our uh, eastern European comrades, especially in Ukraine? 
You know what? Here's the best thing. Um, fuck the governments. All, all governments. Any government. You don't have to be a Zelensky fan. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a Biden fan or a fan of Boris Johnson and whoever. Like, you have to just think about the people, you know, listen to the actual people. Um, The fact of the matter is that while we're all debating, you know, Putin's uh, actions and what will Biden do and what will NATO do and the no-fly zone and all of these things, Real people are dying, you know, people just like me and you who a month ago went to work and led regular regular lives and now have to contend with bombs falling down on them and seeing their loved ones die in front of them and being forced out, you know, of their homes with their children. You know, these are terrifying moments for them. So my my suggestion is always going to be and my advice is always going to be fuck the governments think about the people it's the people that we should be standing in solidarity with anywhere on the planet where there is an aggressor um and the you know the the person who's actually being oppressed we stand with the oppressed and right now like you don't have to like every single Ukrainian person. You don't have to be their friend. They are not asking for that. But what they are asking for is just a little bit of empathy and humanity and understanding, you know, how this is impacting them. And then if you want to actually materially help, you know, advocate for a peaceful solution, advocate for, um, you know, spread and retweet and share uh, ways to donate to actually help those people on the ground. You know, don't don't be afraid to actually say something nice about the people in Ukraine just because you think that your leftist friends are going to be mad at you if you retweet a fundraiser to help the Roma or disabled. These are real people that are really suffering, and you should, as a socialist, stand in solidarity with them above everyone else. That's just, you know, the same way we stand in solidarity with the the civilians of Iraq or Palestine or Afghanistan. We should stand in solidarity with, you know, the people of Ukraine. Um, It comes down to just sheer empathy and humanity at the end of the day. And as far as the rest of Eastern European goes, or actually just the global South or the developed world, or my personal favorite is the third world. I'm a third world world kid, and I don't mind saying that. just fucking listen, you know? <laughs> Just know that different people have different perspectives to the way this world works. Um, their experiences, their reality is going to be different um, than yours. And you have, to, you have to listen because if you're just allowing yourself to sit in this echo chamber of fellow Western leftists, you are not really contributing anything to the progress of socialism, to the progress of just general humanity. Like it's nothing like you're, you know, it's useless. But if you are listening to people in the developed world in the global South, and you do choose to learn from them, you know, you're going to open your eyes to I think a whole new world where you're going to realize that it's not so black and white. It is complicated. Um, And the best thing that we can do, I think just as people, not leftists, not right-wingers, not liberals, but just as people is just fucking listen to each other and have a bit of empathy. You know, I think that's all that, that we want 
like as a Bosnian genocide survivor, um, I would love to have more of the Western left stand in solidarity with me because I am a socialist, you know, I consider you my people. I would like you to consider me, you know, your people too. Um, I don't want to go stand in, you know, solidarity with a conservative who hates, you know, gay people and, and uh, black people. I want to stand in solidarity with the people who are fighting for the right things in this world. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, have a bit of fucking empathy. So, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I have definitely really enjoyed talking with you. And I think um, our listeners are, are going to enjoy hearing this. Where can people follow you on social media and find more of your work? Yeah. Um, well, it's just, you know, type my name in, I guess. Arnesa. <laughs> I'm going to have to spell that out. R-R-R-R. N-E-S-S-A. We'll, we'll include your handle in, in the there you comments. Go. <laughs> but this, it's been a pleasure and, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land your this land, land.